we are going to be talking about a very important subject. Don't put it up just yet. Um, I want to say real quick before Samantha puts that up. I, I do hope that you were edified and encouraged as we studied through the history of the Reformation. If you uh, did not get any of those lessons, they're on our website. You can go back and I believe there was, uh, from myself, there was 11 lessons. And then we have one from um, Steve Lawson teaching on John Knox. I encourage you to go back and, and look through that. I was talking to my brother and saying, I've been encouraged or at least challenged to want to go further back. Um, actually to the apostles and then catch us up to the Reformation. So I'm in the works of that right now. So we'll be we'll be doing that probably later on, maybe in the fall. That's going to take me a long time, but that's something that that is definitely um, inside of me. So we'll, we'll be doing that tonight. It may possibly seem like we are are taking a direction in a completely different way. Um, but I pray that as we study through our subject tonight, you see the importance of this subject and you also see how those who were laying down their lives in the Reformation were laying down their lives for what we're going to talk about tonight. So that what we could be talking about tonight could be a reality in churches across the world. <clears throat> I usually like to begin our essential classes with a question. So here's the, the uh, rhetorical question. You don't need to answer it. You can answer it in your minds. Don't answer it out loud. Just kind of think about what you would say. When you are looking for a church or when you were for hopefully those of you who are members, when you were looking for a church, what were you looking for? That's OK. You're OK. Just don't go any further. What were you looking for when you were looking for a church? What were you looking for? Here's what I think is the answer to that. You don't know what you were looking for. That's what I think the answer is. Unless you have a, a strong understanding of, of biblical theology, unless you have a strong understanding of what a church is supposed to look like. The answer to the question is, I don't know what I was looking for, but I was looking for something, Right. Here's the other question. How do you know that the church that you are attending or the church that you are now a member of, how do you know that that church is a biblical church? Answer for many people. I don't know. I'm just there. And one of the reasons, many of the reasons why we're there is because I like the way the preacher preaches. Another one is I have friends there. Another one is I have pastor or I have family there. A lot of times people will go to another church just because all my family's there. So I'm there. I don't know what they're talking about, but my family's here. So I feel safe. <clears throat> Another reason I like the pastor. I don't even know what he's really talking about. I just like him. Right. <clears throat> I think one of the other ones is I feel comfortable there. That's probably maybe a scary one. I feel comfortable there. I come in and it, it's it's comfortable. I pray that as we preach, 
You don't feel comfortable. You feel on edge. Tonight and for the next maybe two or three weeks, I'd like to share with you the marks of a biblical church. The reasons why I'm doing this is because, number one, it's, it's actually in line with our essentials of what we're doing. But I think it's important for you to understand what you should be seeing in a biblical church. And if these things are not present, then probably you should run from that church. Now, let me say before I begin, no church is going to be free from error or free from sin. Why? Because churches are filled with and led by sinful people. Therefore, when you are looking at these churches, do not expect the Apostle Paul, who was also a sinner, and the church of Ephesus. That's not going to happen. When you are looking at these churches, and as we talk about what a biblical church is, understand that you must look at each of these different points that we're going to talk about tonight, and we're only going to get to three. Look at them with grace, because you could see a church that is established in these things. You could see a church like us who is working on these things or working toward these things. So understand there is no perfect church. Amen. There is a difference, however, between being an imperfect church that is filled with imperfect people. Bless you, Angelique. And being an apostate church that teaches and practices heresy. Two different sides of the spectrum. You've got an imperfect church that is trying to be biblical, led by imperfect people. And on the other hand, you have an apostate church that thinks that they're teaching biblical theology, but they're actually teaching nothing but heresy. Those are the churches you run from. Amen. So let's begin with number one. The number one mark of a biblical church, I think, and these are not in, in order, meaning these are not in order of most important, but they are in, in just random order. Number one, I think, is expositional preaching. That may sound weird to you as a mark of a healthy biblical church, but a mark of a healthy biblical church is one that practices expositional preaching. You may ask yourself or ask me, what is expositional preaching? Expositional preaching <clears throat> takes the Bible verse by verse and goes through the process of expounding or setting forth or explaining each verse or each passage and its meaning. Amen. What are we doing on Sundays? Expositional preaching through the gospel of John. A biblical church preaches in this manner. And here's what happens in doing so. In, in preaching expositionally, the man of God stands under the word of God, not over the word of God. This is very important. The man of God never stands over God's word. He always stands under God's word. This is so important so that when someone preaches, if all you hear is opinions you have a person who is standing over the word of God and not allowing the word of God to speak for itself. When you have a person who is running the aisles and expressing their personality 
and saying a bunch of fluff as they're running all throughout the aisles. You have a person that you are being more attracted to their personality than the word of God. Here's why you don't see me running around and stepping on chairs like I used to. Because if I do so, you're going to remember the things I did rather than the words that were said. So I stay here because I'm bound to the text. When I leave this text and start running and talking to you face to face and running down the aisle and talking from outside, standing on chairs, laying hands on people, you are losing sight of God's word and you are now fixing your eyes on a man. Danger, Will Rogers. I just dated myself. Sorry. <clears throat> when the word of God is preached, God shines forth. Amen. When the word of God is preached, God speaks forth. When the word of God is preached, God himself reveals himself to the hearts of men as his word is being declared verse by verse. Amen. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. You may be asking me or saying to yourself, OK, fine. Show me that in the Bible. Let me start by saying God accomplishes his will through the proclamation of his word. Meaning this, when God speaks, that which he purposes is accomplished. The Bible says in Genesis chapter three, verse number or Genesis chapter one, verse number three, God said, let there be light. And what happened? <clears throat> there was light. You can follow God accomplishing his will in creation from Genesis 1, 3 all the way to Genesis 2, 18. And in virtually each verse of this, these two chapters, you have God speaking. And when he speaks, that which he speaks come to pass, comes to pass. What is my point? When God speaks his word, that which he accomplished or that which he desires to accomplish through his word comes to pass. Isaiah 55, 10 says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, <clears throat> do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Listen, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall what? It shall not return empty, but accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, when God speaks his word, he accomplishes the purpose for which he intended it. Amen. Amen. But specifically, where do we see expositional preaching? The Bible has many examples of expositional preaching. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse number 10. You don't need to go there, but take note of it. We see the Levitical priests <clears throat> teaching what? The entire law and explaining it thus forth. They are going through the entire law and explaining to the people what God is saying. In Nehemiah chapter 8, <clears throat> we see Ezra and the Levites reading the law and giving sense to its meaning. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus meets two men on the road to Emmaus. And the Bible says in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what did he do? He interpreted to them. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, he began to walk from Moses to the prophets all the way to himself and began to do an expositional message to these men. Can you imagine that sermon? 
In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 13, we see Peter and the apostles expounding the scriptures and urging the hearers to respond with what? With repentance and faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Now, listen, 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 listen closely. Pay attention. On the other hand, in Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah in Jeremiah, that whole chapter, God condemns those who speak on their own imaginations. And not from the mouth of the Lord. On the other hand, God condemns those Who are trying to be creative. On the other hand, God condemns those who speak willy nilly off the top of their head and are not bound to his word. Why is this important? Does it matter? Can we just be creative and come up with our own topics and teach it any way we want to? No. In doing so, you are standing over the word of God, not under the word of God. You stand behind the word of God, not in front of the word of God. Amen. Amen. That leads teaching creatively. It leads to to people that say, let's think outside the box. Let's do something unconventional. Let's do something. And they love to say this untraditional. And then you become emergent. And you become like a so-called pastor, Rob Bell. Who think that by their creativity they're pleasing God. And instead they've simply become a false apostate Christian. If you've never heard of Rob Bell, he's the person who says love wins. He recently was on Oprah and says that the church needs to catch up with the culture. And that this 2,000 year old book is becoming irrelevant. And the more we rely on this, the more irrelevant the church will be. And he is a so-called spokesman. For evangelical pastors, not this evangelical pastor or Protestant pastor. Expositional preaching is important. It's when you do not do exposition that you end up saying things like that. It's when you let me stop. It is important because through the Holy Spirit, he he inspires. he, He has inspired the word. He convicts us. He uses his word to convert us. He uses his word to build us up and he uses his word to sanctify his people. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword. Doing what? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and the discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living. It's active. Why would we avoid it? The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, living and abiding word of God. John 17.17 17 says, sanctify them, set them apart in your truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. Preaching, biblical preaching, expositional preaching makes the main point of the text, the main point of the sermon. The main point of the text becomes the main point of the sermon. And it, 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 
It puts at the forefront God's agenda. It puts at the forefront that God rules the church and it puts behind it. The man does not rule the church. The man, this is not your agenda. You are preaching the word of God. If you are not preaching his word, then you have nothing to say. This is accomplished through expositional preaching. The next mark, number two. Biblical theology. Number one, expositional preaching. But as you are expounding upon the word of God, is what you are expounding upon biblical? Because you can expound. I think it is the... uh, What's that church called? What's the one that Greg Laurie's a part of? No, no. What's the what's the uh, denomination called? No, it's called uh, Calvary. The Calvary, the Calvary churches. They are notorious for going verse by verse through the Bible, but they are also notorious for saying things that the Bible does not actually teach consistently. That's important. Many times when people hear the word, and now we're talking about biblical theology, many times when people hear the word theology, they automatically shut down. And they think that, oh, we're taking this to the extreme. Now you're talking about all this heady information that's all for people of universities and seminaries. Don't talk to me about theology. But let me ask you a question. What is theology? The study of God. What do we do each time we gather as a church, be it this church or any other church? We hopefully open up the Bible and we begin to teach things about God. Do we not? So when we say biblical theology, we simply mean that when we open up the scriptures, we are teaching, hopefully, sound, consistent, clear doctrine. What does doctrine mean? Teaching. Simple. We are teaching what, what is biblical theology? Teaching what the Bible teaches. We mean that what is being taught in the Bible is being taught in the church. And that we have a correct biblical understanding of God. That we have right thoughts about God. That we have right thoughts about salvation. That we have right or biblical thoughts concerning Christ and his word. Yes. That's biblical theology. Yes. Where do we find the basis for biblical theology? Here's where we find the basis for biblical theology in the Bible and all throughout the Bible. The Bible teaches, if you don't know this, the Bible teaches sound doctrine. We don't, but it does. So our responsibility is to line up with this, not to make this line up with us. Amen. When we read Romans, Ephesians or Hebrews, we see books that are stuffed with biblical theology. All of these books and more of the Bible, all of the Bible is our basis for biblical theology. Paul charged Titus and Timothy, but Titus especially in Titus 1 9 to give sound doctrine. And listen, and to rebuke those who contradict it. What is it? Sound doctrine. Our theology here at RBC is reformed. We fall into the historical teachings of reformed Baptists. Our theology is covenantal, meaning we teach what the Bible teaches. And as we teach it, we can be identified as Reformed Baptist. So if you're wondering what theology do we teach? Reformed theology. 
Can you get more specific? Are you Presbyterian or are you, are you Baptist? We are Baptist. Reformed Baptist. That's what this church teaches. Now, you may be a member here and say, well, I don't know what that means. That's fine, but that's what I'm teaching. Amen. That's what our elders are, te- are teaching. Yes, yes. That's what anybody who's involved in any kind of leadership here at the church is teaching. They are falling in line with the historical teaching of Reformed Baptists. Who are those people? Spurgeon, Owen, Jesus. Okay, let's go on. John the Baptist. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Amen. Someone will say, well, true biblical theology. I don't want to deal with all that. I just want to deal with I want to love people like Jesus loved people. All that theology stuff. I don't want to deal with that. That may be true. Maybe you just wanted to love people the way Jesus loved people. But in doing so, you are placing yourself also within a theology of saying, my theology is love. (laughs) You're still placing yourself within a theology. Yet another person may say, well, I I don't really know all about that. Well, what did your pastor, pastor teach on Sunday? Man, my pastor was on fire on Sunday. He was preaching. What was he preaching about? He said, have faith and God will bless you. Now you've just identified yourself into another theology. Word of faith, prosperity. So a person may say, I don't know about all this biblical theology stuff, but when you ask them, what do they teach? What do you believe? They're placing themselves within a theology. Is it biblical? Some of them are not. Especially the two that I just mentioned. That's right. That's right. When you tell someone, I go to a reformed church. Well, what does that mean? Here's simple. I told Gino this on, on Sunday. There's a lot more to this. Just tell them we believe in the five solas and the five points. And if they want to know more about that, say go to our website. It's all there. <laughs> five solas. Faith alone. Grace alone. Christ alone. God alone. Scripture alone. Right? Take them through the doctrines of grace. And if they want to know more, then we can go deeper. But you should at least know those ten things. Why is this important? Does it matter? Does it matter? Do we have to know all this stuff? Is it hot in here? No. Okay. Um, does it matter? <clears throat> here's, here's the problem in asking the question, does any of this stuff even matter? The problem is people don't have a high view of God's word or a high love, a deep love for God's word. So they don't care about any of these things that the Bible teaches. Here's what they care about. They care more about wanting to be friends with everyone than standing for the truth and standing against heresy. To them, truth doesn't really matter. Friendship matters. They sing that song all day long. Why can't we be friends? That's all they care about in church. You go to this church, I go to that church. Why can't we be friends? No. It does not work that way. Truth matters. And if we are not willing to have these discussions about truth and say we're going to have to go separate ways because that is not biblical theology, then we're saying truth does not matter. And let's put it aside just for the sake of being friends. Biblical theology is important. These are the reasons why. Number one, evangelism. The gospel, which we're going to talk about in a moment, is a doctrine. Therefore, sound doctrine 
is necessary for evangelism. How you believe the gospel will determine how you share your faith and what you believe the outcome of sharing your faith will be. Hear that? How you believe the gospel will determine how you share your faith and also what you think the outcome of sharing your faith will be. Because you could say, I'm going to share the gospel with someone. Now, repeat after me. Sign this card. You're doing evangelism a completely different way than I'm doing it. Because to me, I'm going to share the wrath of God, the grace of God, and leave it up to the spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Which we'll get to in just a moment. Next one. Discipleship. Our biblical theology is going to have a great effect on discipleship. John 17, 17 again says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How do Christians grow? They grow by learning and living in light of what? Of truth. I was talking to my brother today and say, it's a shame that in more churches, the consistent saying in churches is not, I'm growing so much. That should not be. You should be in a church and you should be saying about your own spiritual walk, I'm growing so much. I'm learning so much. If you're not saying I'm growing and learning, then you're not growing and learning. That's dangerous. That's a dangerous place to be in. So growing and learning in what? In light of a right view of God's word. In light of responding to God's word appropriately. Can you please turn the air on? I'm hot up here. That's weird. Next, biblical theology is important for unity. If a church is not teaching biblical theology, listen, on what basis do we unite? If a church is not teaching biblical theology, on what basis do we unite? Because we both like menudo? No, no, because we both name the name of Christ. Mormons name the name of Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses name the name of Christ. Do we unite with them? Why? Because it's a different Christ. It's a different Christ. They have a they're worshiping a different Jesus. First John one through four. Second John two, ten through eleven. Worship. Biblical theology is important because it affects the way that we worship. When we worship, as 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, we declare the excellencies of God and exalt him because of who he is. And sometimes when we worship or sometimes in worship, people tend to worship their shame and worship their sin. Rather than worship the one who has removed our shame and removed our sin. And especially charismatic churches, you see people that are falling on their knees talking about how bad they are. They have just made that entire time of worship about them and not about the one who was worthy, not about the one who has conquered that sin and conquered that shame. Amen. Amen. Last but not least, the biblical mark of a, God, of a true church is a place that teaches the gospel. Number three is the gospel. 
The gospel is not just a once in a while proclamation. It is a every single week proclamation through the sacraments and well, every single week proclamation of the gospel in word and through sacraments, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we declare the word of God and then we also demonstrate the word of God through baptism and through the Lord's Supper every single week. We're going to be doing that every single week. Those of you who don't know that we're going to be taking communion every single week because every week this is a demonstration of the gospel before our eyes. Every single week we are are fellowshipping literally with Christ. Every single week we have the cross before us and we are reminded that our sin has been conquered. It's no longer on our shoulders. Every single week we are reminded of what Christ has done on behalf of his elect. So why would we not want to be reminded of that every single week? Here's the thing. If someone says, why do we take communion every week? Let me ask you a question. Why do you pray every day? Mm. Amen. Huh? Why do you give every week? This is such a wonderful moment that we have, we have minimized so greatly throughout the history of the church. And we here at RBC are going to worship God yes. as the historical church has done. Every, every time you meet, as often as you meet, as Hebrews says, historically, how often they meet every Sunday. Yes. Yes. And what do they do? They celebrate it. They look back. They presently celebrate it and they look forward Amen. at what Christ has done. If someone was to ask you. What is the gospel? Many people would have no idea how to answer that. If you were to ask the average person who calls himself a believer, what is the gospel? You'll get a myriad of answers. And the most common one is to simply quote John 3.16. That's not necessarily the gospel. We here have been challenged in the past with, and it was not really a challenge, we're joining with other churches and putting aside the fact that we teach a different gospel. And we will not do that. That's right. We stand shoulder to shoulder with those who preach biblical gospel, That's right. who preach Christ in a biblical way. I can start naming off different pastors in town. They start naming off different churches in town. They know who they are. But just so that you know, let's go through what is the gospel. The sovereign, holy God of the universe created all things for his glory. Number one. God created man in his image and gave man the freedom in the garden to freely obey him, which would result in life and blessing, or freely disobey him, which would result in death and cursing. Number three. Man freely chose to disobey God and therefore sent himself and his progeny, you and I. Down a course of destruction. We therefore are unwilling and unable to choose any good leading to salvation on our own. We are totally depraved. The wrath of God is fixed. It is focused on simple humanity. Because of their rebellion. Thank God for Ephesians 2.4. And thank God for other verses like it. But God. Being rich in mercy. Sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to save sinful rebels from, the, from his wrath. Amen? Thank God for that. 
these people, you and I, were not deserving of any mercy, of any grace, but God gave them both. God chose to save them by his grace. It was for these people that Christ came, obeyed the law perfectly, living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we deserved. On the cross, Christ paid our sin debt and in the resurrection conquered once and for all sin, death and the grave. God calls us to repent and to trust in Christ alone for our for the forgiveness, for forgiveness and for our salvation. If one repents of their sins and turns to Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we will be born again and have eternal life with God. Amen. Where did you get all that from the Bible? Romans chapter one, verses one through four or, or chapters one through four really gives us a full exposition of the gospel. Probably the fullest exposition of the gospel that we have in the scriptures. Is all of that really important? Yes, it is of the utmost importance. Here's why you do not walk up to someone and say to them, Jesus loves you and he died for you. You don't know that. Here's what you do know. The wrath of God is fixed against you because you are a sinful man. There is a way that you can be saved. It's through Christ alone. If you repent, turn of your sins and turn to Christ. If they say, I need to repent, Holy Spirit's doing a work in their life. Amen. If they say, I know or I don't care, blood is not on your hands. His sheep will hear his voice and respond. Amen. Amen. Is all of that really important? Yes, it is. Why? Because Romans 1.16 tells us that it's the, it's the power of God, the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's important. The gospel is important because it's the only way for sinful man to be reconciled to God. The gospel is important because everything that we do in our church flows from the understanding of this gospel. Our preaching, our counseling, our discipleship, our worship, our evangelism, our missions, etc., all of these things are based on the gospel that we believe. Now, if someone is believing something other than what I just said, on what basis is one converted? On what basis is one regenerated? If they are not regenerated or converted upon hearing a biblical gospel. I'll say that again. I'll say it in, in another way. <clears throat> if you didn't hear the biblical gospel, what did you believe to be saved? Come to Christ and he will heal your body. Come to Christ and he'll heal your marriage. Come to Christ, he'll give you a better house, a better car, a better life. I'll come. These are all pragmatic, sinful, selfish reasons for coming to Christ. And it's no wonder that at a, present, at a presentation like this, people will come out of their seats in droves to so-called altars and respond to a pragmatic gospel, which is no gospel at all. That's right. Why? Because they're responding to a message that feeds their flesh. But their souls are still bankrupt and lost. 
people who have their rallies here in town. I don't need to say their names. You know their names. Just stay focused on what I'm saying. (coughs) He did it for me. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. You don't know who I'm talking like. If you're tired of being sick and tired, what you gonna do, brother? <laughs> that was Hulk Hogan. No, that is not the gospel that we respond to. That is not the gospel that saves. That's the gospel, so-called gospel, that causes people to come up and have no change in their life. No fruit pouring out of them. Still calling themselves a gangster for God. Grow up. They should be growing up. We come to Christ by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that cuts to the transplanted heart. And when we hear of our sinfulness and our rebellion against God, we recognize our need for a Savior. That is apart from us, that is outside of us, that is only found in Christ and in him alone. And we repent and turn to Christ as our only hope of life. And that, my friends, is the gospel that saves. What is a biblical church? It is one that has expositional preaching at the forefront. What is the biblical church? It is one that practices and teaches biblical theology. What is the biblical church? It is one that preaches and declares every single time they get the chance. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone will say about me. He preaches charismatically. What does that mean? That I believe this. and That I preach it with all my heart. Then George Whitfield was a charismatic. Then Charles Spurgeon, the first megachurch pastor, was a charismatic. Then John the Baptist was a charismatic. Then Jesus Christ, who spoke to the multitudes, was a charismatic. No, I believe this. And Paul Washer is a charismatic. John Piper is a charismatic. Huh? Steve Lawson, then, is a charismatic. Bodie Bauckham then is a charismatic. No, we are people who believe this and who will lay down our life for this gospel. And when I speak to you, it is not me speaking. I believe it is the Spirit of God leading me to say this in a way that that is inside of me that I believe. I'm not giving you new revelation. I'm just saying what I have been changed by and what He, by the grace of God, is using me yes. to declare. Yes. It's yes. his word, not mine. 